well, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, Overlake, I love you. I love worshiping Jesus with you. I, I don't know about you. I, b- both these services, I've gotten emotional during that song. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. This is why I don't lead worship. <laughs> but if that doesn't move you, right, then you need a little, like, clear, check. You know, like, that's... Uh, uh, it's powerful stuff. Would you like to see the ground move today? Yeah. Uh, well, we will pray for that. Okay. Well, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. Go ahead and grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see that we are working our way through a series on the book of Acts. It's really a focus on the first church. And the reminder is that what was happening in the book of Acts, what is the first church, is still the church today. That over like we are a a part of the first church, the movement that God started, we are a part of that same movement today. And we started taking a look, Acts, um, in chapter 2, Jesus had told his disciples, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, boom, Holy Spirit came, and this ushered in a new era, a new age where the Holy Spirit of God would dwell within the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. And so this is a new thing. Boom, the church is born. Bang, mega church one day. And then uh, we talked about how because the believers were walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, there are these things that are normative in the church. The Holy Spirit convicting of sin. The Holy Spirit transforming lives. The Holy Spirit uh, bringing healing and bringing deliverance. And these are all things in the first century all the way through today. We're still a part of that process. We also talked last week about how when there's a move of God, there's opposition to it. And so we talked about how the enemy of God comes against the, the movement of God and the plans of God and the people of God. And if you missed that last week, please go back and take a look. There's some really good, really helpful kind of, oh, clarity type of of stuff that we covered. And then what I want you to understand is if the enemy of God cannot get his work done in opposition in the spiritual realm, he will use people to do his work. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 4. We're actually going to kind of survey about three chapters today, three or four chapters. And and so we're going to be moving around, but I'm going to tell you a story, an unfolding story of Peter and John and those apostles right there in the first days. And it starts with a healing. So Peter and John are walking in through the gate beautiful. There's a man there who cannot walk, 40 years, he's been sitting there begging, And he asked Peter and John for money, and they said, we don't have any money, but we're going to heal you instead. Get up. He gets up. He's dancing. He's praising the Lord. So that's what happened. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's the power of the Holy Spirit because uh, Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, right? And so, boom, he's up. Jesus gets the glory. Peter and John walk into the temple after that experience, and they begin to teach in the name of Jesus, They begin to point all glory back to Jesus Christ. And then in that context, they are arrested. This is at the end of Acts chapter 4. And they are um, brought, uh, or they, they spend the night in jail. And then the next morning, the religious council, the high priest, call them into a setting where they're like on trial. And the the high priest says, tell us what's going on. By whose power are you doing these things? 
And then Peter has the opportunity to say, it's not about the name of Peter and it's not about the name of John. It's about the name of Jesus. It's Jesus' fault. It's all about the name of Jesus. His is the only name that matters. And so that first verse on your outline, Acts 4.12, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And over like this is a theme we come back to again and again and again because by no means is this the only verse in scripture that talks about the unique person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the savior. There's not a lot of saviors. It's not one savior among many. In fact, Jesus is the only one who claimed to be a savior. Muhammad does not claim to be savior. Buddha does not claim to be savior. Vishnu, Confucius, like uh, Gandhi, uh, you, you know, I, who, who, I, don't, I don't know, Pearl Jam. Like no one else claims to be the savior, but Jesus is the savior. Peter says there's salvation in how many other people? No one. This is it right here. Jesus, Jesus. Now that's so, we talked about this. It's so exclusive, one savior, wow. But he wants to save the whole world. Okay, he wants everyone to be a part of his salvation. Okay, so next verse. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Now, (laughs) I think that would be pretty cool. You know, people look at you and they go, well, there's really, there's nothing really special about you. Um, Except this, that I can tell you have been with Jesus. Man, I, I want that in my life. I want people to, oh, yeah, there's really, there's nothing that special about him. I mean, he's not that tall. He's not that good looking. He's certainly not that eloquent. But I'll tell you what, I can tell that he's been spending time with Jesus. May it be true, Overlake, for us. So the council wants to shut the disciples down in this moment. There's only one little hiccup. There's this dude standing there who hasn't been able to stand for 40 years. And now he's standing there, and it was the power of Jesus that allowed him to stand there. In fact, I want you to understand that the council would have loved it if Peter said, it's in my own name that he's healed. Or if John would have said, it's in my own name, it's in the name of John that he's healed, but they didn't do that. They said, no, it's about Jesus. It's all in the name of Jesus. It's all because of the work of Jesus. And you see, the council had just a few months ago had this person named Jesus killed because he was a thorn in their flesh, and now he's still causing problems. You can see this is a bit of a black eye for them. Okay, So let's take a look. They called the apostles back in and commanded them, Never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. This is the first example of civil disobedience in the church, right? Thank you very much for your input, High Council. Um, We have heard you, and we choose to ignore it completely, okay? So not long after this, Peter and John and the rest of them, they're still preaching in the name of Jesus. And and they get arrested by the same guards for preaching in the name of Jesus. They're put in jail again overnight. But here's where it changes, and you can find this in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. This night, an angel of the Lord comes, opens up the jail cells, and, and lets the apostles out. And then the angel tells them, good show, 
good on you, mate. Keep after it. You know, apparently, the angels are a part of the British Commonwealth. Uh, it says, keep giving your message of life. You're doing great, great work. And so the apostles are understandably encouraged that they have now been released by an angel. They've been encouraged by an angel. And so the very next morning, what do they do? They go right back out in the temple, and they start preaching in the name of Jesus. So I want you to imagine this, though, from the council's side. The council sends a bailiff over to get the apostles. And he goes over to the jail, and he finds the jail cells. They're all locked up tight. Just nobody inside. So he runs back to the council. Guys, you are not going to believe this. The jails, they're all locked. They're totally sealed. It was absolutely as I left it last night. The apostles, they're just not there. Somebody else runs in. Guys, you're not going to believe this. All the apostles are out in the temple. They're preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And you got to think the council's going, this is so frustrating. Right? And so they send the, the guard back out to get the apostles. And the guard goes out. This time, you know, this is now the third time, you know, in a week that he, he goes out and he, and we get the indication that he asks them very nicely because he knows something supernatural is going on. He says, would you please come with me? Please. Uh, <laughs> uh, come with me and, and y- y- you know, come to the council. And so the council comes, or the, the apostles come to the council, and, and I, I want you to realize this. They come again to stand in front of the council again to get chewed out by the high priest again. And the high priest wastes no time. Um, We told you not to preach in the name of Jesus, and you're preaching in the name of Jesus. We told you no, Jesus. You're preaching yes, Jesus. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Now, tell us what's going on. Do you just not understand what we're saying? And this is Peter's response, okay? Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. And the high priest, when he hears this, the council, when they hear this, they are like so angry that they're like blind. They're like, we just told you not to preach in the name of Jesus. And what do you do? You preach Jesus to us. They're like, what are we going to have to do? Beat it into you? Hey, that's a good idea. And so look at the next verse. It says, they called the disciples in and had them flogged. Friends, that's not a spa treatment. They are beaten. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus. Oh, that's going to work really well. And let them go. The apostles left the high council. Wait, what does that say? The apostles left the high council. Does that say rejoicing? Would you circle that word? Rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is Messiah. 
So the council orders them in this passage, it's the fourth time, they have commanded the, the apostles, do not preach in the name of Jesus. They've had them beaten, first imprisoned multiple times, now beaten. And the disciples are not, they are not shuffling with their heads down. They're not walking out halfway defeated, you know, let's just, let's just mind our P's and Q's. They are rejoicing high-fiving, doing a victory dance. It says, as they're leaving, they're just still in the council. They go, woohoo, you know? They're, they're, and that had to make the council really happy. Uh, like, oh, that beating really did a good thing. Like, they, they understand our point now. No, because the very next day, they're preaching in the temple courts and from house to house. Jesus is Messiah. That they are, there's this rejoicing moment that they're counted worthy to suffer as Christ suffered. And then I just want to give you a heads up that from this point through the rest of the New Testament, we are given instruction on how to live within cultures that are persecuting. We, we are instructed on how to live in God and above our circumstances because suffering is now a part of the norm for the first church, starting right here. And, and I just say all this because I, I want you to read a couple other verses, and there are so many throughout the rest of the New Testament, but 1 Peter 4.1 says, so then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. That makes total sense. Your house is burned down, your kids are being abducted, you're being beaten with bamboo, and yet you're really not thinking about looking at porn that week. You see what I'm saying? The Bible's very, very clear. No, no, if you're suffering for your faith, you're done with sin. Next thing, it says, 1 Peter 2, 21, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example, and you must follow in his steps. We read verses like this, and they're written from the perspective of the writer to the people that are receiving the letter. So Peter's writing this to the recipients of his letter, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to, instead of hearing the pronoun you, I want you to read it with the pronoun I. For God called me to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for me. He is my example, and I must follow in his steps. The reason why we're spending some time on this is because I want you to understand that if persecution and suffering happen in your life, you should not count it strange. You should not be bewildered as if this is something totally unusual, uncommon. You should understand, no, no, this was the road Jesus walked, and I'm to follow in his footsteps. And then in Acts chapter 7, we have the story of Stephen, who is the first martyr for faith in Jesus Christ. He is the, he's the first person serving Jesus actively to give his life for his active service for Jesus. And this opens up a widespread persecution of the first church. I'll give you a definition of persecution. Persecution is hostility, ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. That's the definition of persecution. Now, depending upon your preferred news source, 
you might currently consider yourself persecuted for your faith. But the Bible, when it talks about persecution, it's not talking about being slightly disrespected or not invited to the cool kid parties, both of which I think have probably happened to me and my family throughout the years because of our faith. No, when the Bible speaks of persecution, it's talking about being arrested, imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and murdered for faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is still happening in our world today. Followers of Jesus around the world are being beheaded. They are having their homes taken from them, their children taken from them, their livelihoods taken from them. And I can only imagine these brothers and sisters of ours around the world, when they hear about American Christians whining about the war on Christmas, they want to come here and beat us with bamboo rods. Just a total difference in what's happening in America versus what's happening around the world. Right? It's, it's like we would come into a place where someone has just had both of their legs amputated because of the battle that they're fighting, and we say, yeah, you know, I had a blister once on my toe, and so I know exactly how you feel. Just a t total different. In fact, I, we just found some kind of, uh, you know, these are, these are just American examples of first world persecution. Uh, this Starbucks line is so long, it's going to make me late for Bible study today. Hashtag God's word, hashtag persecution. Right? Or this one, trying to take a left out onto Willows out of the church parking lot after service. No one is letting me in. Hashtag his timing. Hashtag persecution. Hashtag 9900 problems. Or this one, left a Bible track instead of a tip and the waitress had the nerve to return it to me. Hashtag no way. Hashtag persecution. Hashtag million dollar bill. <laughs> by the way, if, if you do feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to leave a track, you should tip 50% on that day, right? Just grease the skids a little bit. That's better. <laughs> Christians should be the best tippers in the world anyway. That's just par for the course. So I just want you to see, obviously, there is more going on in the New Testament than what we're experiencing in America today. And I assure you that even in the worst stuff and the hardest stuff and the grossest stuff of life, even in the horrific and inhumane persecution of his sons and daughters, God can use even those circumstances to advance his purpose in his kingdom. In fact, you might want to write that down somewhere. God can use even persecution to advance his kingdom. And I want to give you an example these are the words of Jesus among his last words to his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He leaves them a mission statement. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world, ends of the earth. That's a great mission statement, and he's, he's speaking to his followers who are in Jerusalem. He says, wait, stay here until the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you're going to tell everyone about me. You're going to start where you are in Jerusalem, but then you go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
And what happened, we've already talked about, is that they received the power from the Holy Spirit. Peter preached the very first sermon and the very first expression of church, and boom, on that day, 3,000 were added. Within a week or two, there were another 7,000 or so. There's like 10,000 new believers, all of them under the spiritual age of two weeks, kind of a deal. And they're in Jerusalem, and, and suddenly they're realizing, you know what, running a mega church is hard. It's hard running a mega church even in today's world, but I want to tell you, it's got to be really, really hard running a mega church when all of your mature believers are less than two weeks old. Okay? And so they had their heads down, and they were focused on how do we steward this thing that God's doing right here in Jerusalem. And so they're in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 3, and in Acts chapter 4, and there's all these chapters that go by. Where are the, the apostles? They're all in Jerusalem. Where's the work of God? It's all in Jerusalem. Where did Jesus tell them to go? Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Well, they hadn't thought about Judea. They, nobody even given a Samaria thought. And the ends of the earth, that wasn't even on their radar at all. Until Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, a great wave of persecution began that day. Speaking of the, the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. Sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered, look where? Through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Oh, look. Suddenly, they are right where Jesus wanted them to be in the first place. Friends, I, I've come to realize this. I, I, I've been in the ministry. This is my 23rd year of serving Jesus. I want to tell you something. We think we know what the best is for our lives, and we think we know what the worst is. I am convinced we have no stinking clue. We would think that a wave of persecution coming over a fledgling church movement would be the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen. But in God's economy, he can use even that persecution to accomplish his will. So we don't know what the worst is, and we don't know what the best is. That's why the the only thing we can do is just trust the Lord and keep walking with him. And there's a lot that we can talk about when it comes to persecution, but I want to, I want to have somebody share with you who's right in the, the trenches. I want to introduce to, to some of you, it's uh, Dr. Lynn Ellis. She's on our team here. Uh, she's a pastor on our Serve the World team and uh, just does an incredible job all around the world working with our partners. And one of the things I want to tell you is that Lynn and I have been serving the Lord together in friendship and in multiple roles since 1998. So, like, yeah, she's way old. And, um, <laughs> and I honestly, she, I just, I love serving with Lynn. She's a dear, dear friend. I love her family. Would you please welcome her as she comes to share with us today? Thank you. So Overlake, we as a local church in our history here have always been a church that's gone global, and we have been committed to reaching out to the least and the lost for decades. This includes people and nations with the least access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we send missionaries to hard places. We also practically come alongside existing small groups of local believers um, our brothers and sisters who are literally risking their lives for the witness of Jesus. And because we live stream the service, I actually need to be a little careful with the things that get shared. I'm not going to identify people's names and even some of the locations. 
I have firsthand experience of being with church leaders in a training, and we leave, and the police come in and arrest them and put them in prison. Now, they start prison house churches, which is fantastic, but we don't want to be the cause of other people's demise. Half of the missionaries that we have sent out from OCC or that we're currently supporting are serving among Muslim people. Most of you don't know that, and I'm thrilled to have a chance to share that with you. It's dynamic. Incredible things are happening. Several are in very sensitive situations, and we, again, want to be careful with what we share. One of the stories is after the first strike in Iraq over 10 years ago, we partnered to send a team into that region to kind of survey the land. One of our great leaders here at OCC ended up joining that team a year later on a short-term trip. He used his general contracting experience to go help them build a community center that our government funded <laughs> to reach out to people in this part of Iraq. Um, he used the limited materials that were available, and they put together this building, and an incredible program started providing education and training for men, women, and children in that community while sharing the love of Jesus. The surprise has been how well they've been received and the response of that. And right now, to bring you up to speed, this is how God works. That community center is being used right now to house and care for displaced Christians and minority groups that are being pursued by ISIS. We're hearing the firsthand stories of the CNN broadcast of the evil being perpetuated by this group. Families are finding shelter and care for now, and many of us in this partnership are praying for their protection. Over 100 people, many who are children, are being assisted, and Overlake is one of several who are trying to provide finances for this unexpected operation. There have been displacements, harassments, and imprisonments to several of our workers right now that we support. And through our partners, we've learned there have been torture and loss of human life, lives of both adults and children. And we pray for those families that are left behind to stand strong in the face of it. This is the high cost of the good news of Jesus' love. Recently, one of our missionaries was very concerned for a man who became a follower of Jesus just recently. His city was under siege by ISIS, and this is what he wrote to our worker. Don't worry about us. God is with us. Jesus will save us. We will never leave this place. We are here to help people understand the Bible. I talk to people every day, and I find new believers every week. How can I leave them? This is my main job. We are seeing an unprecedented number of Muslims coming to Jesus throughout the Arab world. They're seeing Jesus in dreams and visions. They're hearing broadcasts of the gospel coming out of other countries into their nation. They're encountering, encountering the very few believers in their nations who are living in those other areas and discovering truth. We're, we're part of a group of other organizations and churches that are providing training for those leaders on an ongoing basis. A Muslim background believers as Muslim background believers, they're stepping into leading others in their faith in Christ and sharing Christ openly. Can you imagine coming to faith in Jesus with no church to attend, no access to scripture, and no one to train you? Yet, through, in spite of it, the Holy Spirit is working in incredible ways. It was nearly a decade ago when plans for this training center started coming together, and I had this privilege of being part of this uh, gathering of Arab believers. They came from all different nations and historically nations and tribes that hated each other and warred against each other. And here was this 
this group, this remnant of followers of Christ coming together to worship and pray, they'd worship till 2 and 3 in the morning because they had the freedom to do it. Incredible. And as we were in one of the last gatherings, we were coming up on a time of communion. And before anybody took the elements, one of our brothers from a very sensitive country stood up and he said, I just want to say on behalf of my people, I am so sorry that we have hated you. And he named off another people. (laughs) And that person stood up and said, and I want to say on behalf of our people, I'm so sorry that we hated you and have persecuted you. And that person stood up. And so it went around the world, this, around the room, this incredible spirit of reconciliation. The spirit was moving. I, I literally felt like I could feel something breaking in the spiritual realm. It was powerful. And after the gathering was done, all went back to their respective countries. But the brother who first stood to ask for forgiveness was one that as soon as he arrived in his country, he was met at the airport by the police, taken into custody, and we have not heard from him since. And many in the team believe that he died and gave his life for the gospel. Last spring, I was sitting at this training center where it is now in full operation. Hundreds of people are getting trained every year through it. And I met this woman from the Middle East who shared her story with me. She shared about how she came to faith as a young adult because of the witness of a Christian friend over a period of five years. She was too scared to accept Jesus at first because it meant that her family would have to disown her. And for Muslims in a lot of countries, it doesn't just mean switching religion. It means changing identity, switching families, leaving behind everything of who you are in your personhood. It's perceived as a Western religion. But then she told me Jesus appeared to her in a dream, even before she accepted Jesus, and said, I will take care of you. So emboldened by that dream, she accepted Jesus and secretly started reading the Bible and meeting with other Christians. It was, in, it was one of her older fundamental brothers who caught her at a meeting and became angry and threatened to kill her. She was disgracing the family. So she raced home to tell her parents, and it was with a heavy heart they actually protected her that night from her brother, but then sent her away telling her never to contact them again. She was only 20 years old. God provided for her as she fled, finding refuge in a distant relative's home in a more moderate country. But she ended up meeting and marrying a Christian man, and together they lead a house church, and they're having a ripple effect throughout people. It was with tears she shared the grief of not being able to return home, though. But over the years, God has made a way for her to reach out and and contact her mother and her father. She lost her family, her country, her community, even her identity. Yet it's what she said to me that struck me at my core. But I count the loss of my family as a sacrifice of my life to Jesus. I trust him. Because of her bold witness to her family, her sister recently accepted Christ and joined her in this new country. Yeah. So how will we respond to the report of God's people being broken, imprisoned, enslaved, beaten, cold, and hungry? So here's the hard part of our Christian walk. Persecution is a function that God can use, calling some to literally die for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. God does everything with a purpose, and if he chooses to call his children to suffering and self-sacrifice, 
He must have a very important purpose in it, and it's for his kingdom. What we know of Christian history as well as what we're seeing today is wherever there is great persecution and sacrifice, within a decade we see great response to God's love. Second century theologian Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed out of which Christians are born. We are even the fruit of that centuries later. Mark 15 gives this account of the centurion's eyes being opened spiritually to God's truth while witnessing the horrific death of Jesus. And that same spiritual dynamic continues. So I know many of you in here have a heart to care for this and have asked, what can we do? And I don't say this lightly, but we can pray. We can remember them and not forget. And as this message closes today, um, I, I want to challenge us all to pray out that God would intervene where evil's at work and bring peace. He's invited us to do that. That we would pray that our brothers and sisters would be able to stand up in faith during their persecution. And pray that he would send his labor force into the harvest field, as Luke 4 commands, and many hearts would be open and respond to his truth and love. As I end this point, I want to thank you, Overlake. Many of you don't know these stories, but I will tell you, because you give faithfully and support the work of this church, you're supporting the work of what's going on around the world. So thank you for your commitment and investment in that. We are on mission together. We serve an awesome God who's using this body to do incredible things around the world, and it's to Jesus' glory. Thanks for letting me share today. Thank you, Lynn. And we're going to pray those specific things in just a moment. There's a verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 3. And it says, remember, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And that's why we're spending time on this today. We're spending time on this to give context to the whole First Church movement that we are a part of. But I just want to confess to you that, that uh, this is one of those messages I'm preaching to myself first because I don't think I do what that verse commands me to do. I don't remember. I, I, I don't empathize enough that I, I don't allow myself to get into that same place where I realize and I, and I even kind of experientially feel that kind of persecution. I, I realize that's a reality of what's happening in the world and I'm not going before the throne with that kind of fervency praying for them. And so what I want to do is I want to end with the prayer of the first church believers. And I want to contrast it a little bit to the prayer that is what I would call the Great American Prayer. So the Great American Prayer, if you're unfamiliar with this, uh, I'll just let it, it's real easy, you'll remember, you'll resonate right with you when I tell you. The Great American Prayer is the prayer for safety. God, would you keep us safe? God, would you keep us under your protection? And, and I, I do just want to say, because this is, there's space in the kingdom of God, this is not a bad prayer. It's not even an unbiblical prayer, because the Psalms are filled with prayer. Prayer for rescue, prayer for God to shelter us under the, the shadow of his wing. Like, like this, is a, this is a biblical prayer. It's not bad to pray for safety. In fact, what I want you to know is that just now, today, 
We've got a team over in Pakistan. Pastor Gary is over there. Uh, chairman of our elders, Mark Bauman, his wife Lisa are there. Uh, Obed, who runs our uh, Pakistani fellowship home group here, uh, he's there as well. And they just now, they wrapped up one of the conferences they're speaking at to, uh, with Christian, um, uh, Christian believers, you know, followers of Jesus from that region. And then they're starting another conference today. And this conference had over 10,000 people in attendance. And, and so this is an amazing thing that God is doing, bringing this incredible encouragement. Uh, you know, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit moves powerfully, um, that uh, these believers are released back into their environments, and, and that there's all kinds of great victory happening in that. But I just want to confess to you that one of my prayers for this team is a prayer for safety. I pray that God would keep them safe. I pray that God would keep all those believers safe that are being encouraged and empowered. And as they go back into the communities, that they would be safe underneath the protection of God. I pray that God would bring our team home safe so they could be back with us here at Overlake. This is not a bad prayer to pray for safety. But I bring this up because I want to contrast it with the prayer of the first century. You see, I, I want you to understand that there's something going on. This, this, it's, it's a wacky spiritual dynamic that's happening. It's that we pray first and foremost for safety while God has made American Christians the safest Christians on planet Earth throughout all of history. We are so safe and yet we feel so unsafe that we keep praying for safety that God has already answered our prayer for. This is a trick of the enemy. It's a part of his deception over us. Let me, it happens a couple of ways. It's the same trick that he, that he pulls with wealth. We don't feel wealthy. So we pray, God, would you give us financial abundance? Would you make us wealthy? We don't feel wealthy. We pray for wealth. And yet, this generation of Christians is the wealthiest generation of Christians that has ever existed throughout all of history. But because we don't feel wealthy, we're the least generous generation of Christians. It's a trick. It's a, a trick of the enemy. And so what is he doing with persecution? Well, he's making us feel persecuted. He's feeding us this line that we are so persecuted in America. He's having our focus be drawn to the fact that we are so maligned as Christians here in America, and so we feel persecuted, so we pray, and we take all this focus on the fact that we are the ones who are being persecuted. Meanwhile, we're totally forgetting our brothers and sisters around the world who really are persecuted. It's a trick. So I just want to say, again, it's not a bad thing to pray for safety. There's a better thing to pray for, and it's what the first century church prayed for. So let's get into this. I, I want you to see it's, it's in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. It starts with the words, as soon as they were freed. So they've been arrested. Now they're set free. This is one of the times that they've been arrested and set free. I, I want you to see it, it doesn't say, and two years later, it says, as soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. What did they said? Don't preach in the name of Jesus. When they heard that report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great safety. It doesn't say that. 
It says, give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. You want to pray a great prayer? Pray for boldness, right? We pray for boldness. You want to see the earth shake, then pray for boldness, right? They prayed for boldness. They preached with boldness. The Holy Spirit came powerfully. The ground shook, and they went out with great boldness. Overlake, this should be our prayer. We should pray for boldness that we would go out from this place, that we would love our communities, that we would care for our neighbors, that we would serve our parishes, that we would share, that we would invite, that we would be generous with great boldness today, and that the ground would literally shake with the love of God, that the grace of God would be shaking people's lives, the foundations they built their lives on would be shaken because we are going with Jesus with boldness. That's what God is calling us to do as a part of the first church. And so, friends, what we're going to do right now is we are going to pray. And we're, gonna, we're just going to pray that, that God would be with us as he was with the first church. That the Holy Spirit would infuse our lives as he infused the lives of the first followers of Jesus Christ. That we would live our lives in the name of Christ like Peter and John and the rest live theirs in the name of Jesus. And friends, that we would do so with boldness. Wisdom, yes. Discernment, yes. Boldness, always. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and fill us now with your courage. Allow us to be absolutely just, just filled from, from the bottom to the top with boldness. That, that we would remember, as you command us to, our brothers and sisters who are in prison. That we would remember, as you command us to, our brothers and sisters who have lost family members, who have lost their homes and lost their livelihoods, who've had their sons and daughters stolen from them. We pray that you would fill us with boldness and that we would remember our brothers and sisters around the world who you do not forget. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would intervene in these regions where evil is at work, that you would bring peace in these regions where there is great hostility to your love and grace. We pray that our brothers and sisters would be able to stand with great faith and boldness even in their time of persecution. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would raise up a labor force as you talk about in Luke chapter four, that you declare that the fields are ripe for harvest. And Lord, so I pray even out of the group listening to this message today, that you would stir hearts with your courage and boldness, that you would, you would raise other leaders up, that, that we would be able to continue to send and support and care for your work all around the world. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, knowing that you hear our prayers. We love you, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.